Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building here at 106.5 FM. We're glad to have you with us, perhaps on your radio dial or perhaps on the Internet at forwardradio.org, listening to us and God knows where we're grateful to have you joining us for this community conversation we do every week here on Truth to Power, gathering folks around the microphone for conversations to inspire and uh, to probe the issues of the day. Uh, And I'm really excited. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm host of Sustainability Now. I'm really excited to have in the virtual studio with me our co-host Hart Hagen from the Climate Report and Let's Talk, which you can hear on this station every single day of the week at 7 p.m. Welcome, Hart. Hi, Justin. Welcome to you. Yeah, it's great to be here. And we also have back in the virtual studio with us Jake Bush from the Louisville DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Find out about them at dsalouisville.org. Hey, Jake, great to be back in conversation with you, man. Yeah, man, I missed you. I missed that that glorious Habern studio background. I know, I know, it's yeah. Beautiful sights. <laughs> <laughs> if only this wasn't radio, the listeners could enjoy it too. Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like to point out the limitations of the medium here. We're all about uh, community empowerment by any means necessary. We're going to talk about union organizing today. I'm so excited to to touch on this subject again. Obviously, something DSA is really uh, passionate about, and it relates to what DSA Louisville is doing right now in terms of their socialist day and night schools, uh, and you all can get involved. Again, dsalouisville.org is the place to go. If you click on events, you'll see that coming up this Thursday, October 22nd, it's a socialist night school. They're going to be discussing a couple books by the woman we're going to be talking about today, uh, Jane McAlevey, who is uh, a union organizer a scholar, an author, and political commentator. She's contributed to the New York Times, The Nation, Jacobin, and many others. And in June 2019, UC Berkeley's Labor Center announced the appointment of McAlevey as a senior policy fellow. She's written three books about power and strategy and the essential role of workers and trade unions in reversing income inequality and building a stronger democracy. Those titles are Raising Expectations and Raising Hell from Verso Books in 2012, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age from Oxford University Press in 2016. And her latest title, which just came out earlier this year, is A A Collective Bargain, Unions, Organizing, and the Fight for Democracy. And uh, those last two books are going to be the topic of conversation at Socialist Night School coming up this Thursday, October 22nd, 6 to 8. Jake, you want to talk a little bit about the night school and the day schools and, and what those are like, what those conversations are like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've facilitated a number of them myself. Um, I really miss being able to meet everybody in person, (laughs) but I think we have done a fantastic job of uh, getting the message across over Zoom. Uh, We we always do it remote now for everybody's safety, Uh, but I think we've done a great job of creating a good environment where, yes, you're here to learn a lesson, but there's also a great conversation involved. Yeah, how does it work with like... uh, I imagine it's not too many people at once, but like, do people raise hands and how does it work in terms of facilitating that conversation? So we try to use a stack, right? So we we have somebody on hand to make sure to take down names, who needs to talk, who is a point they want to raise, that sort of thing. 
Um, so we try to get everybody involved in the conversation. We don't want it to just be one person lecturing at you. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> um, so what are, what are some of the topics that have come up in, in reading this book? You've already had some conversations about it? Uh, we've had some conversations uh, sort of privately. We're getting ready to roll out the actual, uh, uh, quote unquote, you know, lesson, Excellent. Uh, okay. which will be coming up. Uh, but the things that we really want to talk about is how do we build a roadmap to organizing in the modern age and in yeah. our in our context in Kentucky? Yeah. Um, you know, because a lot of people, when they think of organizing, they think of very specific jobs, highly educated people. And that's not always the case of where we need to be organizing. Uh, so that's really what we want to try to get out of this is, is try to raise people's consciousness and raise their confidence that they can organize in their workplace. And of course, this is uh, really relevant to the the times we're in. Uh, I, I can think of no more pressing issue than the inequality we're facing in America. Uh, it's certainly top of people's minds as we look at a perhaps a new member of the Supreme Court, uh, perhaps a second term of Donald Trump and all of his cronies, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, we are in the new Gilded Age for sure. Uh, and, and there are a lot of parallels between this Gilded Age and the one in the 1800s, right? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, it was it blew my mind back in 2016 when Trump was elected and there was this new sort of uh, fire amongst working people in this country of feeling like the Democrats left them behind. Liberalism was kind of hitting a dead end of what to do about it. Uh, you saw a lot of people buying like the Communist Manifesto. Really? <laughs> um, which, hey, I'm not complaining. Um, but, you know, somebody did write a piece at that time and pointed out that inequality now technically is just as high as it was in Karl Marx's context in the middle of the eight of the 19th century. Wow. Uh, in, uh, I believe he was writing in England at the time, but yeah. Isn't that astounding? Uh, it is about the same as it was then <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of who has it and who doesn't, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around really. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. We've come so far, yet not really. <laughs> right. Well, Jake, I know you had some quotes that uh, you wanted to share from the book. Uh, if you've got those in front of you, maybe that would be a good way to kick off the conversation. I actually do have a really good quote to kick off this conversation. Um, and this is actually uh, Jane McAlevey quoting Timothy Snyder. Uh, it's in the very beginning of her latest book. Uh, again, that is called a collective bargain unions organizing in the fight for democracy. Um, and this is the quote she uses in the book. It is institutions that help us to pre preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after the other unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union, and take its side, right? I thought this was a powerful quote for a number of reasons. And one of them is that I actually have a, a criticism of this quote in some ways, uh, but I think it kicks off the conversation pretty well uh, because this cuts to the core of what democracy really looks like. Um, you have to have institutions that can stand the test of time and remain strong. You know, if you just mobilize over a specific issue, everybody goes away after you're done mobilizing. And now, you, now what? What's next for the fight? You don't have anything. So you have to have an institution to keep the power in place. Uh, but that institution has to be responsive to the people as well. 
You know, yeah. you think about how private owned uh, presses and, and, and newspapers, they don't really respond to the people. They respond to the profit margin. You know what I mean? And the courts, if the court is constructed in such a way that it is not democratically controlled, then how on earth can the people actually fight for the court that is not built for them, right? <laughs> um, and this is the thing that I want to get people started talking about, because I think people in this country at this point uh, are pretty familiar with mobilizing. You know, we know what it means to go out and protest mm -hmm. and, and raise money. We're pretty good at that. Um, but I don't think we've quite gotten down the institutional part of it yet building something to last, building something that's going to be around indefinitely. Um, and I think that the way that you build those institutions is very important because if they're built in a democratic way, then they will have a democratic use. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and Jane McAvey is big on a type of grassroots organizing as opposed to the top-down organizing, some of the unions that we ha have seen in our lifetimes and prior to that were ineffective because they had this leadership that was unresponsive to the workers and the power wasn't really coming from the workers. So um, she has this, uh, if, I, if I could, uh, you know, I, she has this uh, advice for rookie organizers and it's 20 points. I won't read through all of them, but about two thirds of them are really good. Um, number two is tell workers it's their union and then behave that way. Number three, don't do for workers what they can do. Number four, the union is not a fee for service as a collective experience of workers and struggle. I like one thing that she says in here is don't third party the union. Don't make the union sound like it's a separate entity. Mm. Like there's us and then there's the union. The union is us. And that's, that's what it means by don't third party the union. Number seven is don't be afraid to ask workers to build their own union. Uh, don't be afraid to confront them when they don't. <laughs> Number nine, don't spend your time organizing workers who are already organizing themselves. Mm. Uh, number 11, anger is where is there before you are. Channel it, don't defuse it. Mm. Number 12, channeled anger builds a fighting organization. Number 13, don't make promises to workers. Tell them that they're going to get what they're fighting for. You know, they're going to get what they fight for. You're going to get out of what you put into it. We're not going to make you a promise because it's your struggle. Number 15, there's enough oppression in workers' lives not to be oppressed by organizers. Hmm. Number 17, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to break out in a Monty Python quote about anarcho-syndicalism. <laughs> Number 17, uh, Communicate to workers that there is no salvation beyond their own power. Number 18, workers united can beat the boss. You have to believe that, and so do they. Number 19, don't underestimate the workers. And number 20, we lose when we don't put workers into struggle. Mm. So that's a grassroots kind of organizing. It's the union is the workers and the workers are the union. The workers shouldn't be taking all their cues from leadership, especially when this leadership is often a button down suit and tie affair where they're really in bed with the corporate leaders, you know? So there's just, 
a lot of the negative publicity we've heard about unions is based on the fact that they, that they are often un, ineffective because they don't truly represent the workers and they're not empowering the workers to struggle. They're just kind of a, a barrier to real struggle. They're almost like do more harm than good sometimes. Yeah, and, and if I may, I know that we're reading a lot of quotes here, but <laughs> just to add to this, she, she also says that it's helpful to think of a union as a mechanism, right? Nothing makes it inherently good or bad. Its internal rules heavily influence its effectiveness, all right? Now, if the governance systems encourage participation by the best and most diverse workers, the union will reflect the best and most diverse workers' values. If the organization is a do-nothing union, it will reflect the least good values among the workforce, right? And so this is the thing that I think some of those points that Hart was raising, um, and this quote here as well, they really point to the idea that the internal structure of any organization, a union or not, but particularly something like a union, um, is of the utmost importance, right? Because if you don't form an organization democratically, responsive to the workers, uh, bringing out the best of the workers' capacity, uh, then that organization will fail, right? If you don't shore up the inside of your house, so to speak, then you can't really do too much. Um, you actually have to build up the capacity internally in order to externalize uh, the worker power. Am I making sense here? Am I doing the Jake thing where I just kind of like start rambling and everybody's like, what the heck are you talking about? What we love about you, Jake. I know you love it, but I have a, I have a thing I want to communicate here. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think you're rambling at all. I think that's really good. And um, it, 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 both of these things you guys are highlighting points to the fact that uh, in, in a, functioning democracy whether it's at the level of a union or a nation or a state uh it requires participation active participation from the demos <laughs> from the public right uh and i i don't think americans get that <laughs> oh yeah we live in a uh, Raj Patel says we live in a complainocracy. Yes. <laughs> right. Precisely. That's the There's... level of participation, right? To tweet out right. your frustrations. Uh, <laughs> but right. it's actually struggle. And and when Hart was reading off those points, struggle was, was mentioned several times. It, it requires sacrifice. And I don't think we're good at sacrifice, especially for a collective good. Like, I think Americans understand a personal sacrifice so that I can, you know, struggle to improve my own lot in life or my family's lot in life. But collective sacrifice? Can we really do that in America? We have before. Uh, I think it's important to note that it has been done. That's um, excellent. And, yeah. it, and this reminds me a lot of, of two particular things. One makes me very frustrated. One inspires me. <laughs> um, so I remember when I was in school and we talked about unions uh, in one of my classes. Did you really? Um, I, shocking, I know. But it was only it was only in an HR context. Okay. It's like, here's how to negotiate with unions if you're in HR. <laughs> I used to leave that class and there was another sort of lefty in that class lit with me. And we just sort of lock eyes and look at each other like, oh, my God, the horrors we have just witnessed. But, oh, no. But we were talking about that. And there was one student in there who at first thought, yeah, this sounds like a good thing. And then she was like, wait, I'm like compelled to be in this. Like I have to pay dues and like just oh. I have to be a part of this. And we were like, well, yeah, it's the only way it works. And she was like, well, 
that's that's infringing upon my freedoms. And I was like, well, what else are you going to do? That's the thing I had to ask her. Like, what, what are you going to do? Really? Think about that. Like, if you're not going to sacrifice a bit of your individuality for something bigger than yourself, what exactly are you going to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And she just got really mad and ended up storming out <laughs> because I think, and this brings me to the thing that inspires me. <laughs> um, are you all familiar with the documentarian uh, Adam Curtis by any chance? No, tell us about Adam Curtis. He's a he's he, like he makes documentaries. He makes these incredibly long six-hour documentaries. <laughs> I think they're all free. You can find them on YouTube. Um, and uh, you know, he just delves into some very deep, you know, political philosophy kind of stuff. Um, but he was interviewed uh, in 2017, I think, 2016, 2017, when the world really started to be set on fire for a lot of us. Um, and he said that you know you see real change, you you see real change, lasting change happen when people sort of in the liberal middle class start to accept that they have to give up a little bit of themselves (laughs) for something bigger. You're laughing. And he goes on to say, so right now there's nothing like that in the liberal consciousness, nothing Mm. like it. Um, But that's when you get something real. Political change only happens when people understand that they have to let go of a little piece of themselves for something much bigger and more beautiful than themselves. Mm. Um, and that is, that is to me a very terrifying thing to us Americans. I don't know what you all think, but it, so it, what's the next step with that, Jake? Uh, how are we going to give up a little bit of ourselves for a common gain and good? Well, I think that it depends on your context, but in this case with unions in the, in the workplace, it's recognizing that you're going to have to make personal sacrifices. You know, you're, you can't just act, oh, I'm just Jake. I'm just sort of floating through my workplace and going about my work day. I don't have to care about this. I don't have to worry about that. I can go home at the end of my shift and forget about everything entirely. Um, we have to kind of exercise that demon, I think. And I don't just mean people in union workplaces. I mean, pretty much everybody. Um, because I think we have to recognize that the things that are happening to other people also affect you. So we're talking about personal sacrifice for Mm -hmm. more common good and gain. Mm -hmm. I made a list here of things that I feel unions do uniquely well that you might not find in another context like electoral politics or uh, participation in the marketplace, boycotting this or that, or NGOs, nonprofit advocacy type things. Here are the things that I feel unions do uniquely well. See if this makes sense. Uh, see if there are at least some of these things you might agree with. Maybe see if you don't want to agree with some of them, then l- let me know about that too. But what union- unions do uniquely well, uh, A through J. A, uh, address people's material needs. Uh, B, give people dignity. Uh, C, give people a sense of belonging. Uh, D, class struggle, struggle against capital. Uh, You know, if you're looking for the left party in the United States to struggle against capital, don't hold your breath. Uh, E, political education. So unions can do political education, whereas the, you know, the channels of communication are, might be closed off, but in the workplace, you might be able to reach somebody and, and, and participate in political education that might not happen in any other arena. Can you, can you explain what you mean by political education a little more there, Hart? 
Well, we're doing political education right now. We're, we're uh, you know, educating people and ourselves about uh, unions, and uh, this is something that you are not going to find very much at all in the commercial media mm. or in schools. You're going to find some of it, but not very much of it. So it's just, it's really, when I say political education, I'm talking about a viewpoint that you're not going to find in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's an alternative view that people are not going to get unless they, you know, unless they go, I'm talking about a leftist political education, which is you're not going to get in the U.S. Well, I'm wondering, too, if you mean educating about how power works. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's great. Yeah. Political is about power. Excellent. Yeah. Just how took power the words works. out of my mouth. Right. Great. Yeah. That's it. So, so power is, I mean, uh, I like saying freedom is participation in power. If you if you have freedom to breathe and freedom to drive and freedom to marry, but you don't have freedom to participate, you're not participating in power and all these decisions are being made. Uh, so, yeah. so other things that unions do uniquely well, it's crossing party lines. You might, mm-hmm. you know, you might find a lot of Republicans or apolitical people who are, uh, you know, in the process of union organizing, uh, practice of genuine democracy. You know, democracy is when you get to vote on that, which affects you. Uh, if you go to, if you go to the polls and all your choices are pro-war and pro-big banks and, and don't do anything about the issues that you care about, then is that democracy? Uh, letter I, help people, what, that unions do uniquely well, help people identify with the working class vis-a-vis capital or management. And uh, Jay, learn democracy by doing it. Do you mind if I, if I make a small point on yes. one of these real quick. Yes. So, no, you cannot. <laughs> well, I'm apologizing. I'll get <laughs> off the I'll get off the call. Leave me be. No. Um <laughs> so you said something about crossing party lines, right? Now I think in today's sort of hyper polarized sort of environment, it matters to people more and more which party you vote for or identify with, right? That party allegiance has become sort of a a very important identifier for a lot of people, a very personal, visceral sort of thing, right? Um, And a lot of Democrats... Or the minority of people who identify as Republicans or Democrats, but go ahead. Sure. That's, well, that, see, this is an important point, is that for most people, especially in your workplace, right, these kind of conversations really don't matter at the end of the day, especially given the fact that we're talking about unions where you have given people and you talked about political education there's some political education right education right there when you give people something they can share you know what i mean that other stuff just becomes an abstraction does that make sense i've got like i i talked to and i know that like i've got a buddy in the who who works in a an auto shop right and a lot of people around him are real right-leaning he's mostly left-leaning whatever and he says we have our arguments but I know that if I need help with something, they're going to help me. Mm-hmm. And I know that if they need help, I'm mm-hmm. going to help them mm-hmm. because we're in this together. We have a common right. thing that we're working on. Right. And when that common thing is raising the power of the working class, like a union, that's what a union does. Mm-hmm. Then I don't know if this is controversial. Maybe you guys can call me out on this, but who you vote for kind of becomes an abstraction at that point. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't seem as significant when we are in this shared fight together. Does that make sense? Or am I you know, no, a little I, bit on I'm, the edge? I'm there? totally with you. I mean, when you get 
down to where people live and what's relevant. Like the closer you get to the local level, the less it matters whether you're Republican or Democrat. The closer you get to like environmental issues that are in your backyard, the less it matters if you're Republican or Democrat. And I think the closer you get to things that actually impact you in the workplace, the less it matters. The, the, the more you can forget that you watched MSNBC the night before or Fox News or that kind of thing. I just want to remind listeners that you're tuned in to Forward Radio. We are 106.5 FM Community Radio here in Louisville, Kentucky. And this is Truth to Power with uh, me, Justin Mogg. I'm host of Sustainability Now as well, and Hart Hagen, host of The Climate Report. And Let's Talk is here, and we are talking with Jake Bush from DSA Louisville. Uh, You can learn more about them at dsalouisville.org. They're doing a socialist night school about this incredible union organization scholar, act, author, and political commentator Jane McAlevey, uh, and, the, and her two most recent books, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and her most recent book that came out this year, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. Uh, Hart, I, I wanted to ask if, if, if it matters so much uh, who you vote for, if that's, if that's really uh, defining people today, then are independents outcasts? Are independents outcasts? <laughs> well, are they frowned upon for not, uh, not taking a well, side? I mean... I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, but uh, we don't know. I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who really cares about a woman's right to choose, and I and I was saying, like, if you if the Democrats cared about a woman's right to choose, they'd be embracing progressives because there's nobody more, you know. But they, instead, they're disenfranchising progressives. They're alienating progressives. Um, mainstream Democrats like Biden and Harris and McGrath refuse to give an, to give people anything that they care about, like Medicare for all, or, or, you know, so anyway, I'm not sure if that's what you mean, but yes, there is a party that, that thinks it's on the left and refuses to embrace the people that could throw them, that could uh, propel them into power because they like their donors more than they like getting elected. Yeah, and I think that all the people who who sort of sit outside of that two-party dichotomy, um, they do sort of get dumped on, uh, you know, it's sort of like, well, you're just... Get blamed for Democrats losing elections, you know? Exactly. Go ahead. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that does happen, you know, Um, but I think that it's becoming uh, more common to sort of sit outside of that dichotomy. I think more and more people are getting really fed up with it. Let's, I hope that that leads to something productive, but we'll see. Well, and if we're going to make unions relevant to the world of today, then we have to address, I think, the common perception of unions today in America, which to me feels like unions are workers versus corporations, right? And and our politics just replicates that with unions support the Democrat and corporations support the Republicans. But it's got to be more than that, right? It's not... It's not... Okay, let, let's talk about whether Democrats support unions. Who gave us NAFTA? NAFTA has been one of the biggest weapons against unions brought to you by Bill Clinton. Let's look at... Uh, and Obama wanted to bring us TPP, which is an international trade agreement, which is NAFTA on steroids, would have been even worse. What would, the, the two things that Obama has done 
since you know since leaving the presidency, as is he made sure Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination, and he he ended the NBA strike. So the NBA, NBA uh, work, you know, basketball players strike, Obama comes in and ends that as if to demonstrate that uh, the public should not be able to see wor that workers create wealth for the organization and that uh, workers should not be empowered to make a, a, a political statement. So that's your Democrat. And I think that you know, that all of that is very accurate. And I think that that feeds into this cleavage that we're starting to see, or maybe it's always been there, but it's certainly more obvious right now to a lot of people than maybe it used to be between the labor leadership and the labor rank and file, right? So it's sort of understood that when we say the union, right, that we're talking about, you know, labor leadership, the labor sort of aristocracy, as some people have sort of derisively called them. <laughs> um, and then it all, but it also includes the rank and file workers who just make up the union, right? And I think that there is indeed a cleavage in a lot of these organizations. I talked earlier about how you have to build a democratic institution to do democratic things in the world, right? Internally and externally, it has to match up. But if it, you're a union and some of these unions are not built to be particularly democratic and not particularly responsive to the workers, um, you do end up with that cleavage. And I think that's why you see how some rank and file members end up voting for Republicans who are anti-union, right? Which some people say, well, that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But these workers have always been faced with the choice of do I keep siding with the same people who keep screwing me over? which are the same people that my labor leadership that I don't like, they're telling me I have to support these people who keep screwing me. Well, no, I'm going to vote for the other guy, you know, which maybe that's an irrational thing to do, but it comes from a rational place. You know what I mean? Well, I heard the following. I heard a political science professor on a podcast yesterday, and he was saying there's this myth that, that there's this working class that there's this substantial working class that voted for Trump. Uh, that he was saying that really uh, Trump won not because more working people voted for him, but because less working people voted for Democrats. Exactly. Because exactly. they've been betrayed by NAFTA. But didn't you've got welfare reform, you've got NAFTA, you've got, so that was one part, but he's a political scientist, that's one person's observation. But it makes sense if you think that uh, the you know corporate Democrats are just doing less and less and less and less and less to get the vote of workers, but yeah. only in specific states because of our electoral college. Like it's right. not it's yeah, not like it doesn't you matter just... if you're not in like four states. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't you love having to put that asterisk on every single conversation? <laughs> It just makes everything really helpful and understandable. But when you mess. know about swing states, you can be cool because then you're really in the know about how the presidential election really works. Then you get to be a wonk. And then Arizona in a swing state all of a sudden. And then Florida is one of those battleground states this year. So. I love I love all the policy wonk and, and election wonk stuff because they end up sounding like basketball radio hosts, yeah, like talk yeah. radio guys, just cranks. Gosh, 
Well, but that's yeah. appropriate because politics, such as it is, is a spectator sport. You're supposed to have an opinion and you're supposed to have passion and an opinion, but you're not supposed to actually impact what goes on, you know, in the field, like, just like a spectator. Especially if you live in a non-swing state like Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> we just sit back and watch the show. Mm. And all of this is unlike unions, um, which, which are direct politics. You are doing politics every day. Um, and if and if I may, I'd, I'd like to pull another quote from from yeah, McAlevey yeah, here. Please, yeah. She says, "Part of what makes unions and collective bargaining so effective is that workers themselves pull up to the negotiation table to decide how to redistribute the profits they make for others and design rules that actually solve their immediate problems. No other mechanisms engage the ingenuity of workers themselves, right?" So we're just talking about direct democracy here. This is this is straight politics. This is the real stuff. This is not a spectator sport. You're on the court. When you say direct democracy, you're saying actual democracy. It's like this is what actual democracy really looks like in the real world, as opposed to this fake stuff that you've always seen, but you've been taught that that's democracy. And and this is another example of that mutual obligation. Right, that we always that we've been talking about, and how it's so difficult for Americans to understand the concept of being obligated to somebody else who is also obligated to you, and that being a good and productive. Right, um, when really that's the only way you're going to get a victory. That's the only way you you get anywhere is is by not being able to just cop out and say, well, I don't really want to, I don't really want to do that. You know what I'm saying? It's saying that if somebody else needs to fight, you're going to have to fight with them. And when you go to have a fight, they're going to fight with you. You see what I'm saying? And that creates this link not only between the workers, but also the workers in the workplace. Uh, now the workplace is really a place where that has that the owners have some stake or the, the workers have some stake in, you know, uh, where meanwhile, I think in most workplaces, I know everywhere I've ever worked, I was like, I really don't care about this place. It could be anywhere in the world. I'm just here to collect a paycheck and go home. Um, which is not a healthy or productive way to build a society or an economy, I would think. You know, uh, <laughs> let me just reflect that uh, point exactly, too. I see it every day in my work at the University of Louisville. My struggle is to get the students to see the university as theirs and not just a place that could be wow. anywhere in the world, right? And and mm-hmm. to, and if and if the students took ownership of the place, it would be so much better. <laughs> not just for them, but in terms of you know our global impact, sustainability, uh, d- diversity, like all of these concerns that uh, because the students don't uh, take ownership of the place, don't feel ownership of it, uh, it, it tends to just grind on with the status quo. Yeah. And, and the question is always, what's in it for them, right? As, as with all questions when we're talking about having this sort of real democracy, a genuine democracy, uh, you got to really demonstrate, and this is just part of the organizing itself, you have to really demonstrate what's in it for you to, to take ownership of this place and, and really build a strong community tie. You know what I mean? That's the real question that I think a lot of people, I know people my age, because I'm not, I didn't grow up with unions. I didn't grow, grow up knowing anything about why you should have a union. I had a lot of reasons why you shouldn't drilled into my head. <laughs> um, but, but that's something that I think that uh, is very important for the organizing process is just demonstrating to working class people like, no, you can have an ownership stake in this. And here's why you should. Why do you think that is that, that you were told why unions don't work and, and didn't learn anything about why unions can? 
Um, probably because I was raised by uh, sort of bootstrapping people, uh, people who uh, very much learned at a young age that I have three choices, basically. I can join together with other people to sort of fight for a common good, probably going to lose, <laughs> probably not going to get me anywhere. That's what they thought. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's what they thought. Um, I can sort of give up, shrink back, and just keep eating crap for the rest of my life. Mm. Or three, I can start cutting everybody's throat around me mm. and get moved up the ladder, right? Which those are really your three options <laughs> if you're an American in, in this economy. Mm -hmm. You can start cutting throats, you can give up, or you can join hands, right? We, our uh, society and our business environment our character and our economy are characterized by competition as opposed to collaboration. So the, the cutthroat thing sounds, uh, you know, a bit harsh, but the competition, you know, it, it is about competition. You know, there's competition at every little step along the way. And it's been shown in many, you know, the scientifically, it's been shown that, you know, competition has a price. The people's brains don't always work the best in a competitive environment that groups don't uh, typically don't achieve a whole lot together when they're uh, in a competitive thing. I think, you know, competition works well when you're in a short term situation, but if, if you're in a longer term situation, collaboration is much more effective. Um, and, and we had, you know, back when we were hunter gatherers, collaboration was much more the thing. And then we, you know, agriculture came along and that, and we started storing up things and we started having property. Property presents the need to have people to protect your property. And the people at the top who have all this property want to legitimize what they have by teaching everybody else that we were, you know, that competition is the way to be. And if you want to get where I am, you have to work harder, you have to be more competitive, that kind of thing. And I think it says a lot how you just said how our whole structure of society is based around competition. And this kind of comes back to what we were talking about with this sort of internal organization, right? Like, are you bringing out the best of people by the way that you've organized? Well, we've organized our society, every corner of it, based around this idea of extreme competition, right? And so it's no wonder that that brings out that element in people in our society. It's no wonder why, you know, the people who came before me and my family who did that kind of thing, who cut throats, so to speak, <laughs> not literally, I don't, I don't want to say that, <laughs> not literally, um, <laughs> but figuratively cut the throats to move up the ladder. No wonder they were that way because it's baked into every part of our society. It's the only option that, that so many people are presented with because it's, it's in all of our institutions. But, but don't most people see unions as just part of this competitive game where it's unions against the bosses? I mean, isn't that the same thing? In a way, I think that there's a difference between competition and confrontation, right? Uh, because a competition would imply that we all have the same goal, but only one of us can actually reach the goal, mm, nice. right? So, so that's, that's a different thing from a union having a confrontation with a boss because they actually have diametrically opposed goals. Mm. Does that make sense? Well, there is actual competition between the boss and everybody else. So the boss wants you to think that they're that it's all collaborative and everything. When actual, you know, that the interests of capital and the interests of the working class are diametrically opposed. It is a zero sum game. 
And, you know, it's like, you know, over the past 50 years, uh, the, the, the wealthy have, have, you know, profits have just gone up and up and up and up and up. Wages have stayed flat, adjusted for inflation. Wages are roughly the same as they were 50 years ago, even though productivity wow. has increased. So there is an actual, you know, trade-off and then an adversarial relationship between capital and labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's what I was saying is that there's this this uh, opposition in where which direction you want, right? Um, and and so when the boss says, "Well, I want to make my profit margins thicker," and you say, "Well, I want my wages to be higher," those two things can't happen at the same time. They just can't, uh, and that's where you see that head-to-head confrontation, uh, rather than the worker saying, "I want this raise," rather than you. Right. We both want the same thing. It's not just money. Uh, Jane McLevy talks about how a lot of the times the the key issues in the strike are not, you know, about pay and benefits. Um, And and it's about, you know, the capital wants to dehumanize people Uh, and, you know, safety, working conditions, hours. Uh, you know, not being able to know how many, either working, either being overworked with too many hours or being underworked with never knowing how many hours you're going to have, you know, capital just, you know, and, it, and it's not about capitalists being bad people. It's we're in a system where the, the corporation is legally bound, <laughs> legally and financially obligated to maximize profits, period, end of story. And, and that means dehumanizing people. That means extracting from people as much as you can. And, uh, and so there is a humane and humanitarian reason to uh, work for workers to be more organized so that they don't have to be dehumanized like that. And that's where that collaboration among the workers is a, a humanizing thing and can lead to a more actual civilization rather than just Mm. barbarism that passes for civilization. Mm. Which is why I loved your point about how unions are particularly good at uh, advancing human dignity. (laughs) You're listening to us here on Truth to Power. We're having a great conversation here on Forward Radio about uh, the work of Jane McAlevey, a union organizer and author of several books that are in discussion at the Socialist Night School happening here Thanks to the DSA Louisville. You can learn more at dsalouisville.org and perhaps join in this Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. is going to be the night class on uh, some of the chapters in No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and uh, also in the book A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. My name is Justin Mogg. I've got Hart Hagen in the virtual studio with me, along with Jake Bush from DSA Louisville. I think I think I imagine our most of our listeners are listening to this and thinking, aren't unions irrelevant now? Hasn't the nature of work itself changed so much, especially if you think about uh, millennials in the gig economy? Uh, is there there's not a shop floor and a boss in a lot of cases, right? There's there's uh, there's uh, algorithms. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and so so let's talk about that. Uh, how how does union organizing look like in the new economy? 
I think that we're seeing some really inspiring things happen in these sectors of the economy that, like you said, are not, you know, sort of the traditional model of what a unionized workplace looks like. Um, and, and, and I think that it's been a deliberate, I don't think I know it has been a deliberate effort by the ownership class, the capitalist class, whatever you want to call them, uh, to shift work in this direction of things like Uber instead of taxi cabs, um, because it, it is much harder to organize, but we have seen people do it. Yeah. Uh, right now, there are people organizing as Uber drivers uh, to make demands and negotiate with the bosses. Um, and actually, Jane talks about this in her book about how the Silicon Valley model uh, is one that is trying to shift us to automation, right? But not automation in the way that like Che Guevara wrote about. People don't know that. Che Guevara actually wrote a fair bit about automation and how that was the future of communism. Wow. <laughs> wow. But meanwhile, our capitalist orientation around automation is based around basically we're going to take all the work away from the workers because then they don't have any power uh, and we're going to pay them like a guaranteed basic income or something like that just to keep them alive so they can consume. Because <laughs> that's their purpose. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that you see it that, you know, there are still places like Amazon, right? enormous employer. I know that when I was growing up in Hardin County, everybody I knew would go work at the Amazon factory or, or the, the, the warehouse or something yeah. for, for a couple of months and then they get laid off, right? Uh -huh. That's the model is you come in as a temp worker and we just keep cycling through temp workers. And I think part of that is to stop organizing. Um, but it's still possible. Uh -huh. You see it, it because these things like Amazon, like UPS here in Louisville, that's a huge employer here. Um, places like the post office, uh, places that you do need to have some places right now at our current time where you do still have that industrial model of having tons of employees on a shop floor at the same time. That is still a thing. Uh, the problem is I think that a lot of people are being pushed away from doing that or seeing that as a career, uh, as something that they're going to stick around in because a lot of the organizing comes from people who I'm going to be in this job for a long time. I need to fight to make it a good job, you know, but I think a lot of people see the gig economy and stuff like that as a way out. You know, it's a way to, to, to get on the exit ramp from this sort of fight and they don't want to have that fight. Well, uh, yeah, the idea is that you could be your own boss, but not really. <laughs> it's that's, that's the model. That's the model. You see it a lot with, with my generation. Now, there's a lot of, if you will, broken promises that have occurred on, on the gig economy. It's supposed to give you mm -hmm. flexibility, but it, it, you know, just, it doesn't pay people anything. There's no security. Yeah, I mean, the lack of security is driving people to to desperation, uh, <laughs> and it's also uh, driving them to disruption as a tactic. And Jake, I know you had a you had a quote you wanted to share from Jane McAlevey's work that relates to that the being impossible to ignore, right? Yeah, yeah. So she she wrote a bit about uh, her experiences on a certain picket line, right? Very recently. Uh, and here's a very short quote it says workers from other unionized hospitals showed up with barbecue grills to cook and serve food, passing cars and trucks were blaring their horns, disturbing the quiet of the neighborhood. The workers were impossible to ignore. <laughs> this is the key right here, you know, um, and this is the key, not just in union organizing, but in all organizing, all demonstrations, it's disruption. And part of it is to disrupt the flow of capital because that's how you get the bosses to listen to you if you cut into their profit margins. Mm. Uh, there's a little hint for you. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is that 
most people are just going about their daily life. They're just, they just have to make ends meet. They're going to and from work. They got a lot of things they're thinking about. But if you, may, if you are impossible to ignore and something else that wasn't in this, she was talking about having games where people on the street would come up and play a game with the workers on the picket line. The, the local churches were, were getting involved and sending food and opening up their doors to people who needed shelter. It gets people involved in this thing that doesn't directly impact them, but now it's a part of their life. The, the protests are out in my street, therefore I am, I am involved in this now. I can't look away from this. The picket line is right outside my door. I can't avoid this. I have to think about this in one way or another. And yeah, that's going to be divisive. Some people ain't going to like it. Uh, but I'd say more people than you'd expect will be re receptive to the message and want to get involved in a positive way. And disruption doesn't have to be negative. Disruption doesn't have to be smashing windows. It can be no. having a barbecue, right? <laughs> it can exactly. be fun. Impossibly, impossible to ignore the good. Exactly. I remember there was a, uh, a demonstration by some very radical anti-abortion protesters here in Louisville a few uh -huh. years ago. Uh, and they wanted to set up, um, you know, all these horrible signs with graphic violence on them and, and shouting at people in the streets through megaphones and, and other stuff like that. Well, some people in the community uh, decided that a good way to disrupt that wouldn't be to necessarily go and, you know, street fight them or something. But um, they brought balloons. They brought huge, huge <laughs> uh, handfuls of balloons to just cover the signs from the sidewalk. <laughs> I love they it. They had people come out as mascots and come and like in a big owl costume and make yeah. a big scene. Uh, it totally disrupted the mood of the event that they right. were going for, but in a positive way. Mm -hmm. I love it. Let me share something with you. Uh, Jane McAlevey talks about this uh, plant, a uh, Smithfield plant in North Carolina. It turned out to be the largest meatpacking house in in the world. And uh, they, they ended up organizing there and in, in a, you know, North Carolina being a right to work state and all these right to work states are historically slave states. And, uh, but it talks about the, the uh, Latinos so you had black, white, and Latinos, and it said by early November, the employer had sent out 550 no-match letters informing workers that their social security numbers could not be verified from the documents provided. Next, they fired two dozen workers based on charges of bad paperwork. So the, the company is actually retaliating against these people for right. organizing. Right. It says the 550 letters sent a signal that mass firings of Latinos were coming. And they, uh, so it says on November 17th, 2006, more than 1,000 Latinos staged a, staged a wildcat strike and walked off the job, temporarily shutting the plant down again. Bruskin is the union organizer, facilitator. Bruskin's deeply rooted values are perhaps best depicted by his response to this action. I am on the job for seven months and about to come, about to drive down to North Carolina to meet with some workers when I get a call from an organizer freaking out. Gene, they've just shut down the, they've just shut the plant down. The Latinos walked out. What should we do? Bruskin's reaction uh, to, Bruskin's reaction to call underscores the central importance of top staff leadership. He could easily have said, get them all back to work as fast as you can, which was exactly what Bruskin's supervisor demanded he do, or run the other way, or worse, hold a conference and con condemning the workers' behavior. 
Any of these responses would be fairly typical of many unions today. Instead, Bruskin, guided by his leftist principles, ordered his staff to get 1,000 bottles of water and 100 pizzas to the workers fast. It's still hot in southeastern North Carolina in November. So this union organizer supported the wildcat strike. Because and, he uh, understood that the disruption is the key. The mm -hmm. key is to not let things go according to plan, because why? plan was not made for you and me. This strike had, this organizing effort over a period of a couple of years had some very positive outcomes, partly because of uh, collaboration between uh, Latinos, African-Americans, and white people. Uh, whereas on the other side of things, management is trying to stoke those divisions. And Slaughter, Hunt, and Ludlam are three people, uh, a white man, a black man, and a, and a Latino man. And it said uh, uh, Slaughter, Hunt, and Ludlam, would, they were all leaders, and they developed a really close relationship with each other. And it said uh, they built an un inseparable bond during the campaign. And Ollie said, me, Slaughter, and Keith, we had a tight relationship. People would see the white, the black, and the Indian, and management knew trouble was coming. <laughs> because that, you know, that fomenting racial, uh, what do you call it? Not discord, but what's the other? Fomenting racial, there's this word for togetherness. Harmony. Uh, yeah, together. Harmony. What? Harmony. Yeah, fomenting racial harmony. I mean, that is trouble. That's why Fred Hampton was killed, because he was an effective leader, because he was building solidarity across racial lines. Well, right-to-work laws were uh, sold to the public as a way of dividing races. Uh, mm. So that's not terribly shocking. That was mm. actually one of the major reasons behind right-to-work laws in the first place was because unions were a, a vehicle for racial collaboration. Mm. And uh, a lot of people saw that as a major threat. So that's how you got right-to-work. Mm. A little bit of trivia for you guys. Wow, I did not yeah, know that. That's not too trivial. Thank you. I, yeah. I didn't know. I'm, I'm all the richer for knowing that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's one of those things that like, it just feels so accurate, but when you hear it, you're like, man, that's too on the nose. Yep. That can't yep. be real. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is a feeling I've had all too much over the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, in our last few minutes here, I want to bring it down to local concerns. Uh, and DSA Louisville has been involved in some of the campaigns going on right now. They're doing some phone banking for Chris Kolb, uh, who's running for school board. You want to talk about that, Jake? Yeah, no problem. Uh, Chris Kolb is, is running for re-election on the school board. Uh, he is a DSA member. Uh, and I've I've done a little bit of phone banking for him. I wish I could go out and knock doors, but it's yeah. not really the best time to do that. Uh, but, you know, it, Chris has been uh, endorsed by the teachers. He's been endorsed by a lot of community groups and activists uh, because he is a very effective and very forceful fighter uh, for racial equity. He's put forward racial equity plans for our schools. He is a forceful fighter for the schools. Uh, themselves, the public schools. Uh, actually, he has been uh, really pushing hard on this tax levy uh, that is on your on your ballot. Even if you can't vote for Chris Kolb, he might not be in your school board district. Um, you will be able to vote on the tax levy question, which is basically just saying we're going to raise property taxes just a little bit. I think it averages out for most Louisvillians somewhere around like $9 a month. I think that's the average figure I've seen. Uh, but it, we're talking about eight figures 
uh, going to the school public schools wow. uh, to better fund the public schools. Uh, and to me, as a as a homeowner in Louisville, that's about the easiest trade off in the world for me. Uh, you know, the money I spend on you know pro wrestling subscriptions or whatever. Like <laughs> you're telling me, I could spend that a month and and make sure that kids are getting a, a really good public education. That's not not a difficult question in the slightest. Uh, so, you know, Chris has been behind things like that and, and he is a very loud and proud fighter, uh, for working people and racial equity here in Louisville. And I really hope he gets everyone's vote, uh, cause the, the right wing is definitely organizing against him. He is a particular target. Let me tell you. Hmm. Um, and, and generally that's a way for me to make my decisions. If I don't know who I'm going to vote for, I'm like, well, who do I not like and who are they voting for? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, yeah, definitely a big fan of Chris and all his work, man. He's a, he's a valuable part of our community. Me too. Yes, sir. Just a reminder, Forward Radio does not endorse any particular candidates, yeah. but we endorse an informed democracy. We want you to vote. We want you to start voting now. You can do it. Uh, it's painless. Uh, I went to vote earlier this week. I'm still wearing my I Voted Today band. Uh, it was so it, it's so exciting to be able to uh, vote in these uh, in tumultuous times where it seems like we have no power, but we actually do. <laughs> right. Well, this has been a great conversation, and if folks want more, they can go to dsalouisville.org and get in on the Socialist Night School and Day School. Again, uh, coming up this Thursday, uh, 6 p.m., uh, October 22nd, and then uh, Saturday the 24th at 10 a.m., there'll be Socialist Day School continuing the conversation about Jane McAlevey's works, uh, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for for democracy. Thank you, Jake Bush, for joining us. Anything else you wanted to say about DSA? Uh, not too much. Uh, just a reminder to everybody, because this is something we're always trying to pay attention to. Just be very conscious of what kind of democracy you're modeling. That's the, the major thing that I want to get across to everybody. It's been on my mind a lot lately. Yeah, good point. Justin, what do you got coming up on sustainability now? Glad you asked, Hart. I hope folks tune in to Sustainability Now on uh, Monday evening and uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, I'm finishing up my conversations. I've been doing a series of conversations with uh, folks around Kentucky who are returned Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, it is the 60th anniversary of the U.S. Uh, Peace Corps, uh, and I, we started off the conversation with some folks who served in the 60s. And we're going to end this week with a couple volunteers who got evacuated at the start of COVID from Madagascar. So if you're curious about that island nation uh, 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 in the Indian Ocean, uh, it's a fascinating place. And they've got some great stories to share with us about that. Uh, anything you want to promote on uh, Let's Talk or uh, the Climate Report, Hart? I've got some discussions coming up about Planet of the Humans, Michael Moore's movie. Awesome, and, yes. Uh, it's been fairly critical of Big Green and some of the things that are supposed to uh, happen under the Green New Deal, but it, it's an excellent movie. It's like, do we want to destroy nature while we're uh, doing renewable energy? I think not. Do we want to do renewable energy while we're employing slave labor? I think not. Do we want, uh, you know, uh, the fascist government of Bolivia to to get all the money while we buy their lithium? Do we want Elon Musk to be able to overthrow, you know, to be able to, you know, 
take credit for a CIA coup against democratically elected Evo Morales. So that's right. That's some of the stuff we're talking about. That it it really complicates the conversation around sustainability, (laughs) which is what I love. I love it. All right. We got to do that. So yeah, stay tuned to Ford radio. Lots of great stuff coming up and uh, truth to power. will be back in your ears again in one week's time. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you. Jake. Thank you.